Good evening, Nancy. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I, I was just looking at the title thinking I should change that. I was thinking of a few things. So um, do you and Gina want to get us started and, and I will clean up some stuff and I will change the title and we can get moving here? Yeah, actually, I was going to change the title, but I knew you'd be calling on me in a minute. So <laughs> I couldn't, uh, I knew I wouldn't be able to talk and uh, do that at the same time. So, and uh, yeah, again, today, we're primarily going to focus on um, the genocide convention and the section that is associated with crimes against children. And this is going to be a a tougher section, maybe not as graphic as the session that we had last week, but it's it's still going to be tough because we are talking about um, treatment of children and kidnapping of children and how important that is in the whole scheme of things. Um, so I think what we'll do is and again, we'll be reading from the New Lines Institute report, as well as a lot of other resources. And I'll put that report link up into the nest as well here in just a minute. And I'm going to turn it over to Gina, if you're ready to uh, kind of kick off with our intro on um, our resources for anyone who has, has difficulty hearing this session and how they can reach out for help. So take it away, Gina. Sure, absolutely. And, and I know myself that uh, this section of the report is, is particularly difficult. I don't have children, but just the thought of what these children are going through, um, what they've been subjected to, and having talked to two experts earlier today in preparation for tonight, you know, it definitely it raises strong emotions. So the resources that we suggest for uh, if you are finding yourself in distress discussing genocide, any aspects of it. And I apologize for not having more country resources here. If you have them, please do share them with us. But in the United States, if you find yourself in immediate emergency, please call 911 or a loved one or someone who can get you to the hospital. Um, if you feel suicidal, the National Suicide Hotline can be reached at 988. That's by call or by chat. For those who are struggling with memories of sexual assault, again, I've said this before, I myself am a sexual assault survivor, so I know how this material can be when you're trying to approach it. It can be triggering. The National Sexual Assault Hotline, which you can access by call or chat, can be reached at 1-800-656-4673. For our listeners in Canada, you can go to mentalhealthfoundation.ca for many resources, among them HOPE, the number four, Ukraine. You can, in English, text HOPE, the number four, Ukraine, to 393939. In Ukrainian, you can text UKRAINA to 855-450-2266. To that same number, you can also text uh, in Russian, Ukraine. I'm not sure of the pronunciation there. I do apologize. And in French, ESPOIR. For Ukraine, E-S-P-O-I-R, the number for Ukraine, to that same number, which again is 855-450-2266. And remember that if you find anything here overwhelming, it's, it's not a sign that you can't support Ukraine. You can always take a break, step away, 
we need you strong <laughs> to be able to uh, handle this material, come back to it and be able to, as best you're able to or willing to support Ukraine. So I hope some of those resources are helpful. Thanks, Gina. And I want to remind people of why we're doing these sessions specifically, because we hear a lot here on the space. And and thank you, Gina and Prince, for all of the, the delicate expression and care with which you communicate um, some of these atrocities specifically. But the what we're doing here is to try and help people have more clear and concrete language around the genocide convention, what it means, what the responsibilities are, and so that when we see and hear about these atrocities, that we can step back be a little bit more objective and rather than run to our government saying, this is bad, fix this, that we can talk in more crisp and concise language that, com- that not only compels them emotionally, but compels them from a moral and a legal obligation perspective. So we're trying to, to give you just a little bit more in your arsenal and also to kind of brace people because we know that as Ukraine continues to be able to liberate towns, villages, and eventually cities, that we're going to hear a lot more in the news. And we want to have this framework of understanding um, to help balance that, particularly as we push that information to our governments and compel them for action as well. Prince, anything you want to cover before we get going? No, I think that's good. Um, I, you know, I think that uh, just recall, remembering that, you know, we're, we're trying to focus on showing the intent here. And I think actually this, this subject, um, the forcibly transferring children of a group, um, I think it, it, it may be the clearest uh, example of intent that there is of, of all of these. Um, this is one that can clearly be shown and clearly be proved all the way up to Vladimir Putin. And I think that is also why there's already been an ICC um, arrest warrant issued for Vladimir Putin and Marie Lvova. And I, I'm sorry, I just don't tire of saying Lvova Belova because for some reason it makes me giggle. However, um, you know, you can trace this. You can trace this in their laws that help to accommodate it. You can trace this in their statements that help to accommodate it. There are so many different aspects that that really show this and prove this. And while the ICC arrest warrants for those two were not for the crime of genocide specifically, I think that will come in time, but it is a first step. And and it is, um, it's, to me, it's like we're really paying attention to this and we see what's happening and I think we will get further, Um, you know, so I I don't want to go jumping too far ahead. But that that is one thing to keep in mind, too, is that um, it isn't for the crime of genocide at this point, but there are arrest warrants out 
for Vladimir Putin and Maria Lavova Belova because of the forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So just to point that out, what do you think, Nancy? Yeah, exactly. And I see uh, one thing really quick, and then I'll turn it to Gina, is that in the nest, I've now put two two tweets. The first one you'll see in the nest is the link to the New Lines Institute Raul Wallenberg report. Um, so if you want to follow along, we'll be starting with page 52 there. And I know Gina has some other resources as well. The second tweet in the nest is um, an excerpt from the UN United Nations fact sheet. And I've got a link in that thread to the UN fact sheet on genocide. So if, if you want to kind of recenter on the definitions and the detail, that fact sheet is very good at doing that. And uh, one of our regular listeners, Emmanuel de Cruz, um, is has also provided some articles in that thread, as has Maddie um, from South Africa. She's also provided some links in that same thread as well. So you'll find a number of resources in the nest um, for you to follow along or follow up on afterward. Gina, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, just to follow up on what Prince said, what the ICC, the International Criminal Court, did back in March was charge both Putin and uh, Lvova Belova, the, the child minister, with the war crime of unlawful deportation of population, in this case children, and that of unlawful transfer of population. So deportation and transfer of population, in both cases children, from the occupied areas of Ukraine to the Russian Federation. So um, again, the Genocide Convention, actually, it's Article 2E, and you can see this online. You can just Google text of the Genocide Convention. I'm not sure if we have it in the nest. But that language is very similar, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. And that's under Article 2, which defines genocide as any of certain specified acts, five specified acts, committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. So what Putin and Lvova Belova have been charged with is, is very close to the Genocide Convention, and it's certainly a step towards intent. Absolutely. And that is, that is what... Uh that is what we have to keep in mind. And, and that is, you know, something that we, we had a long conversation about this the other day on the space. And, and it was, you know, it is all leading up to proving that intent and we have to be patient and we have to be, um, we have to be patient. This is going to take time. This may take years and we are going to hate every minute of it, but um, it's more important that it's done right then it's done quickly. Go ahead, Gina. Yeah, I don't know if you want me to talk about it now, but as I mentioned when we were prepping for this, as by way of giving some context and some indication of intent, uh, I wanted to share something that I'd come across, an anthropologist I spoke with who's done work in Russia, who did work in Russia back right after the fall of the Soviet Union, and Russia's treatment of children, and this, this expert um, is the author of a book called Russia's Abandoned Children, An Intimate Understanding. So do you want me to take a, like a minute or so to kind of go over what I learned from my conversation with her? 
Sure. Yeah, that would be good. Sure. So the the expert that I spoke with is Professor Clementine Fujimura, and she is a professor of anthropology and area studies and Russian at the U.S. Naval Academy. And she's the author of a book, as I said, that uh, she wrote in 2005. She co-authored it uh, called Russia's Abandoned Children. Uh, an intimate understanding. And back when she was doing her research, and this was part of her doctoral research, she told me, in fact, I think it was her entire dissertation. She went to many orphanages in Russia between 1990 and 2000. And she also spent time volunteering. And in, in a recent article, she, uh, which has been republished in The Conversation, and I think Yahoo News picked it up, she basically said that Russia's kidnapping, this is the headline, Russia's kidnapping of Ukrainian children is not unique. Putin and others have long used children as political pawns. And the long and the short of it is that when, um, you know, when she was there, she lived in an orphanage from 92 to 93 and she, and she, you know, worked with these children. And, you know, Russia's treatment of children who were... You know, the way she was explaining it to me is that there's almost and she she didn't use the word caste system, but there was definitely a sense culturally that some kids, as she put it, were seen to have, quote, bad blood. And so I think those of us who may be of the age may remember the horrific stories of, you know, what orphanages look like in Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union, like institutionalized kids were just kind of dumped in there and and. To put it in a broader context, I mean, we certainly in other nations, and this is not to exonerate Russia in any way, shape or form, but other nations have struggled with that, you know, institutional uh, abuse of children where they, you know, through neglect and such. So, you know, I do want to put it in that bigger picture. But in more recent times, when other parts of the of the world were advancing well beyond that, this was still going on. And back then, you know, there there. She said that, you know, you would meet people that really did have some sense of, you know, I want my kid to have a happy life. They weren't all like these, you know, people that hated children. But, um, but you know, at the same time, there was that sense of, well, if the kid is a certain way or vulnerable or whatever, too bad. And there was, she did a lot of field work among kids who fled these institutions and were runaways on the street. And the upshot of her work is that, you know, Putin was basically, we might remember a time when, you know, in the U.S., there was that freedom post-Soviet Union to, prior to Russia shutting it down and the Magnitsky Act, we were able, you know, Americans could adopt Russian children. And then there was a, and she points this out in her article, there was a case where, and that, and Putin had kind of framed that to me, oh, you know, isn't this great? Aren't we great people? We're opening it all up. Then there were a couple of cases where that didn't work out too well. And there was, you know, maybe a a child that had been neglected or abused. There was one case, I think, that was down in, um, I want to say the D.C. area. I'm not sure if that's correct, where a child was left. uh, Yeah, it was the D.C. area. It's 2008. A toddler, Russian toddler, died of heat stroke because he was left unattended in his adoptive father's parked car. Well, that made the international headlines. And then it was, you know, the U.S. is terrible. They they don't know how to handle kids. They don't treat adoptive children well. And now we're going to shut this all down. But the reality is, these children, there is still a high percentage, she told me, of children who just want to flee institutions. They kind of form these street gangs. She worked with some of them. And it's really, it's, 
again, it's not a sense of we've got this really robust childcare system that really addresses children with disabilities. That's really, you know, on the side of kids. Obviously there are individuals who do love their children. You know, that's kind of an innate thing you would hope in human beings, regardless of their culture, or even the, the, you know, the horrors of the, the government under which they live. But there's a culture and there's a record of children, including their own, being used as political pawns in a very real sense by Putin. So that sets up a framework for what we're looking at here. If they're going to do that to their own kids, if Putin's willing to do that to children on his watch, what can we expect as to how he's going to view children of people he has routinely regarded as subhuman, as you know, Nazis, I mean, you know, name, name the pejorative, right? So that, that establishes some framework for intent, whether that would, this material would actually get used in international tribunals. You've got plenty of material to work with right now, but who knows, it may be brought in as context to show a long running pattern of, you know, just disregard for human life and for children. Yeah, thank you. And that that is that is something that, you know, it's it's interesting because yeah, I, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds and too too off um topic here, but you know, in in some of the stuff. In fact, let's not do that. Let's shall we start out by looking at the summary of what the New Lines Institute report says and instead of uh, me drifting off into um what adoption in 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 Russia actually means? Go ahead, Gina. I was going to say maybe before we start, could we take a look at the number of children that we're talking about from, um, from Ukraine's website? I always consult childrenofwar.gov.ua and forward slash in English to read it in English. Um, this is where a, the, I was actually going to ask you whose numbers because. There are so many numbers yeah, and yeah. differing numbers, yeah. but I think that's a good one to start with. It, it's a good one to start with because this is at least what Ukraine's government is is providing that they vetted. And there are photographs of these children on here. So again, that website is childrenofwar.gov.ua forward slash en for the English version. And this is Children of War, and the dates are February 24th, 2022, of course, the date of the full-scale invasion to uh, they've already got it at September 16th, which, of course, is, you know, for those of us who are still on the 15th tomorrow, they list 19,546 deported and or forcibly displaced. So this, and we know we've heard numbers that are just astronomically higher than that, but even that number alone, you know, when I, when I click on this site and I see the children, it's, it's just, I have no words. You know, it's extreme. And I think it's so important to take a look at these photos and keep these faces before us, even as we try to remain logical and, you know, explore international law and see how we can hold the perpetrators accountable. If we can toggle between those two, we'll be able to keep moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, let's, let's look at the deported and forcibly deported. Um, but let's also look at another number, which is extremely low from that website. And that is the number of returned children, because I think that, that, that it, this, that is part of all of this also. Um, and, and that is 386, a very, very small number. 
and I think this plays into all of it too is is how difficult it is to return those children. So Nancy, do you want to start us off with a summary or do you want me to? Or or Gina can do it too, but just wondering. Yeah, why don't you go ahead? I'm I'm actually uh building an, a thread I'll also put in the nest that'll include some of the resources that we discussed today. So I'm gonna build that out and pop it in the nest while you guys kick off. Is that going to include the OCSE report from May? I will do that. Sorry, thank you. <laughs> and it's my pleasure. Uh, I I and don't forget the yellow one either. I've sort of uh, I, I sort of ran out of time to dive deep into the yellow one again, um, but uh, it, it is up on my screen because I know there are things to reference there also. Um, but uh, so uh, you know that these are these are reports that that we look at when we when we talk about these kinds of things. Um, so thank you, Nancy. So just to go on the new lines report, um, the forcibly forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. The large scale transfer of Ukrainian children to the Russian or to Russia or Russian controlled territories can amount to forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. And that's important to keep in mind here is is the Russian controlled territories because they are the way Russia sees it, the DPR and LNR are part of Russia. And so, um, you know, deporting children from to to those areas are also included here. And it, it gets a, a little complicated then because then sometimes those are, children are also deported to um, two places in, in Russia specifically. And um, also not to forget how many children are deported to Crimea where they consider that part of Russia, but that is deporting them to Crimea, which is Ukraine, as we know. So under Article 2E of the Genocide Convention, the forcible transfer of Ukrainian children by the Russians, by Russian state forces and authorities has escalated significantly over the course of the Russian full-scale invasion. And uh, it then goes through and talks about the exact numbers, which are the numbers that we just talked about. Um, it takes a lot of coordination in order to figure this out. And really, um, I don't know that anybody truly, truly knows, knows what those numbers are. So the scale of the children being deported, of course, requires extensive governmental coordination and management. Um, so the deportation also is occurring regularly, further indicating systematic directives. Russians legalization has also been adapted to legalize their legislation, excuse me, has also been adapted to legalize these forcible transfers without the child's or without the child's or the guardian's permission. And uh, we'll get a little bit deeper into that as we go through and go along, I'm sure. So they have uh, created procedures that appear, appear designed to forcibly strip transferred children of their Ukrainian identity, citizenship, and sense of national belonging. These formalized procedures also indicate insensitive, intensive, 
state involvement in this process at the highest levels as may well lower as as well as many lower level authorities to carry out the directives russian authorities have taken documented steps to conceal ukrainian children's identities or to make it otherwise challenging for them to re-return home indicating premeditation and coordination planning and systematic directives uniformed russian state security officials have been caught on ukrainian cctv conducting raids on children's homes and confiscating files to further track children down against the wishes of their community and guardians so these are some of the things that we're going to be talking about and i you know when i sort of thought about this i thought about it in in a few steps beyond this because this is talking about the force forcibly transferring children but i think it's also important to talk about the things that happen to them while they are in russia or in the russian occupied territories because that speaks to the reeducation of these children it speaks to them trying to strip their nationality away and it's not just um stripping their nationality away by changing their names changing their dates of birth changing their locations of birth or um making them russian citizens and there was one more that i seem to have yeeted out of my brain thank you dr nick for that phrase um but uh these are these are all um all things that they do to try to strip the child of their nationality which is part of this and uh so um that those are all things that uh, that we we need to look at including what happens to them as far as is um you know what kind of custody are they in are they in guardianship are they adopted are they left in homes are they left in medical facilities there are a lot of options it's a very very complicated thing and uh, the fact that they have issued those icc warrants actually gives me a little bit of hope and a little bit of comfort so nancy or gina any input here I was going to say that it notes in the report on page 53 that the policy of the forcible transfers forcible transfers of Ukrainian children actually began before the full-scale invasion according to one Russian media source. So I think that that's, you know, again just even more indication of of intent of premeditation of planning that this was not something seized upon in the midst of, you know, the full-scale invasion, but very much intended, and and you know that this was something they they were seeking to to undertake. Yeah, and I would agree. That was one of the callouts that I had, Gina, as well. Um, one of the resources that I had watched, and they've got the the summary of it is the United Nations Security Council session from August 24th, where they had talked specifically about um, the deportation and treatment of Ukraine's children by the Russian Federation. And part of the overview was by Rosemary DiCarlo, the Undersecretary General for Political and Peacebuilding Affairs. Um, they also had um, Katerina Rashevka, Rashevka 
um, a legal expert at the Regional Center for Human Rights. And as well, they had, uh, let me find his name here. I'm losing it. Um, Mikola Kaleba, who's the chief executive officer of Save Ukraine, one of the groups that has been instrumental in bringing um, small groups of children back. And there's a lot of information there. So again, in my compiled resources, that's one that I've put in the nest. But Sergei Kitslivska, um, who is the UN ambassador for Ukraine, noted specifically that uh, the Russian Federation has pursued a policy of mass abduction and forceful indoctrination of Ukrainian children since 2014. And that you know, was a very specific call out on how long they had been doing this. And again, um, hearkening back to demonstration of intent and compared Moscow's crimes against children to those of the Nazis during the Second World War, as far as crimes against children and what has been done with them. Go ahead, Gina. Yeah, and another interesting point in the report on page 54 gets into the issue of adoption, which is still, and this professor I spoke with, Professor Clementine Fujimura, uh, was telling me, and it's here again in the report, actually adoption is still pretty heavily stigmatized in Russia. And the report states that the urgency with which the Russian government has moved to make Ukrainian children available for adoption has been complicated by that fact, that stigmatization. And officials have actually struggled to convince Russians to adopt, uh, to take in the parentless children from Russia itself, let alone Ukrainian children. And the report states, given that adoptions are stigmatized and rare in Russia, Reasonable grounds exist to believe that the impetus for expediting the granting of citizenship to Ukrainian children is not to facilitate, facilitate adoptions more quickly, but rather to strip the children of their Ukrainian citizenship and identity. And to me, that's just even more insidious. Yeah, and actually, I you know what? I have been trying to act. I found another article relating to just the population inside Russia of children and the mention that, that adoption is very stigmatized. I would love some resources on that, but I haven't been able to find them. I even asked Jason Smart to help me find some because he can search in Russian and I can't. And uh, he, he wasn't able to find them. Um, I would think that it is so stigmatized that nobody writes about it. And that is sort of the impression that I get. That is how stigmatized the adoption of children is in Russia. And then just just going back real quick, you're, you're talking about already starting in 2014. There is an initiative. There is an initiative. The Russian Occupation Administration in Crimea joined an initiative called Trains of Hope in 2014. And this is where they are working on um, giving these children these adoptive homes. Um, and there is there are pictures of these children on a website where you can go and pick. And, and they have, of course, now included uh, orphans of uh, Ukrainian regions, Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson, Zaporizhia, in October 2022. But there is more to this because 
they don't actually get the status of an adopted child. And I'm going to find the exact quote. And it's a quote by Lavova Belova. And this is actually information from the OCSE report. The OCSE report references the New Line report a lot. And the New Line report references the OCSE report a lot. The OCSE report is focused more on humanitarian law. But when you read about what it says, you can see how the humanitarian law and this genocide law fit together in describing and showing and proving the intent of genocide, which is why I decided to go through go through parts of it. I did not go through all of it because that would have taken me a week and a half or two um, it, with the detail that I was going through it. But that is, those are a couple of things that, that, you know, it's just another piece of proof here where they are using this train of hope initiative um, within the Russian Federation to, to place these children. Go ahead, Gina, and then we'll go to Linda. Yeah, I just wanted to let you know in the two things real quick in the notes for the uh, New Lines report on that Russian stigmatization of adoption, there is an English language reference, and it was in The Guardian back in August of 2015. So if you look on page 54, you'll see it in the footnotes there. And the other thing is I just wanted to put out there the OCE report in case anyone's looking to access it. That's the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the Office for Democratic Institutions and Human Rights. This was a May 4th, 2023 report, and you can locate that on osce.org if you want to take a look. It's about 90 pages long. And I have linked that on the first thread in the nest. So if you go down, I think it's the third reply under that thread let's see one two three third or fourth um you'll see the osce report link there i'm working on the yale one next thank you nancy i appreciate it um go ahead linda yeah this um excuse me russian adoptions brings up an old memory from decades ago um and i don't remember exactly i've been trying to think when it was uh, either maybe the late 90s or early 2000s. Anyway, uh, someone who I became distant friends with that I've lost contact with since she and her husband adopted um, a Russian kid out of an orphanage back when it was during, there was a window of opportunity when it was still feasible. So whenever that window was. Um, and they had to go there. I picked up the kid. And they got there. I'm going by memory, but I'm pretty sure this is correct. And they found out that he had a brother. And so they put in the, there was also in the orphanage. So they put in an application and they went back and they, and you know, they got the paperwork through and they ended up adopting the brothers. So they got these two brothers from Russia out of the orphanage. And she told me some of the conditions uh, in that orphanage. Basically, um, there was no respect for life whatsoever. Um, and so, I mean, they were from the last time we were talking, which has been a num quite a number of years now. Um, and these kids were early teenagers then, so it's been a while ago. I mean, they were still heavily, you know, going to you know shrinks, family counseling, etc. These kids were really messed up because of their very earliest experiences in uh, in the world in that facility. And so, you know, I, I, 
I should see if I could find, you know, find her again and see how the kids are, how they're doing and how the kids are doing. But they were really messed up from a very early age. And, um, yeah, it pulled on my heartstrings. So, all right, that's, that's it. That's my only comment. Thank you. And uh, I will just uh, say here real quick, um, I've got actually, I think, two quotes. Um, and, and one of them is from the, the New Lines Institute report, and one of them is from the OCSE report. They basically, I think, say the same thing. Um, it, but, but what it's looking at here is the urgency of the Russian government to uh, make Ukrainian children available for adoption has been complicated fact by the, of course, like you said, the adoptions are heavily stigmatized. Shortly after that, it says, in fact, Lvova Belova insists that the Ukrainian citizen are not, excuse me, Ukrainian children are not subject to adoption, but rather guardianship, given that adoption is stigmatized and rare in Russia. So here's, and then we go over to the OCSE report. And this is a quote from um, Lova, Lvova Belova, who she herself stated that she adopted a 15-year-old from Mariupol. But the quote goes on to say, yet on, um, on April 4th, 2023, she stated that using the term adoption with respect to children from Ukraine was incorrect. This form of family arrangement was not applied to this group of children. Ukrainian children, including her own son from Mariupol, would be allegedly placed under custody and guardianship in foster families. And then, of course, due to the secrecy of adoption, there is no official data that uh, allows the people who did the OCSE report to verify that information. So... Are they really being adopted or are they, they being placed for guardianship? I think in, also in the long run, they will find more people who are willing to take these children as guardian uh, with guardianship than they will for adoption. Adoption may include a one-time payment to the family, but I think guardianship um, will include a monthly payment to the family for taking care of that child. And that is um, something, of course, that uh, you have to think about. Um, and then uh, we, we can we can go on from there. But I, I just wanted to to point those two pieces out. So it's not even clear if these children are actually being adopted. It may be that they're being placed as guardianship rather than adoption. Go ahead, James. Hey, good evening. Um... Good to hear you all talk about this. I'm I'm glad I got to um, see it this time, uh, listen to it. Um, so a couple things. Uh, I used this issue tonight to leave messages for Greg Landsman and uh, and my two senators. So uh, it was very timely, um, and I also just tweeted out a copy of the. Uh, <clears throat> pardon me, the first tweet in the nest there about this tonight, starting tonight on Maria Port, and copied them in it. So I hope they get to see that. Uh, so that's one thing. I guess another is that um, this transfer of children thing, uh, Putin in 2012, I think, um, 
stop the adoption or, or, or letting others adopt uh, Russian children. And it's, he, I think he, he had um, a couple thoughts about that. One, I'm sure he looked at what numbers he got about growth rate and the like, right? Below replacement <laughs> growth of, you know, the population. I don't know if it was there, but he realized that. And I'm sure he also started to look at the political value of doing that, just as he looked at the political value of making sure that common law could work for the people. And if he could change it from, you know, a little less corrupt at that level for the people, he'd get more votes, as it were. So it's a different world now. That was a long time ago. But those things have... Um, you know, just just show you how, how they're acting. They don't want to separate from their kids, but for everything I've seen, they don't look like they're well cared for anyways. So uh, I'm a little bit um, distraught about all this. But on the other hand, I think that the truth is, is that we're stopping a genocide now through our actions. Can we stop it faster? Yes. That was seems like the discussion all day and all day yesterday uh, as an undertone that we have we have to be urgent. We have to do more. And I certainly agree. But I would say that um, the the police who are responding to this crime, the international community of armed forces that decided to use the U.N. charter um, are doing a good job of trying to stop it. And I think there's a lot of things that make it obvious that this is what's going on there. So I really appreciate the work you're doing. And I think um, the collectively the people helping Ukraine are doing absolutely the right thing and do know. So um, I think we just need to break through everybody's bubble if we can about this is what's happening. Go ahead, Gina. I was just going to say, just to drill down a little more on the OSC report, on, on page 17, they actually break out two main categories of Ukrainian children that are subject to the forcible transfer and deportation. And, and the first one is orphans, children who no longer have parents, because either because their parents are dead, which unfortunately, in, in of course, a number of cases is because Russian forces killed them, um, or because the parents are unknown, or there, there's some, you know, uh, reason that, that that these you know children do not have parents or maybe they have parents i mean they don't have parents but they have extended family who for various reasons aren't able to care for them um and then the second category is the unaccompanied children um which is they have parents but they've been separated from them for reasons that may or may not be related to uh the conflict and the report states that category is very diverse. Um, and, and it does involve cases where families are struggling with life circumstances. Um, you know, maybe parents are working abroad and they have to place the child with family members or they're, you know, one or both parents are in the military. Um, you know, so I just wanted to clarify. And to me, hearing that, it just adds to, you know, these children are already vulnerable going into it. And uh, later on, I would like to be able to share some of this psychological. I spoke with a psychologist today who has worked with a lot of traumatized youth populations and what that experience might is looking like probably for the children who were there, given their various stages of development and the preconditions 
that they experienced before being forcibly deported, and then what the challenges are in their recovery and healing. But again, when you think of these groups of kids, kids are vulnerable anyway, and these kids are made more vulnerable going into this, you know, this forced deportation. Sorry, I didn't have you muted. You said that was from the OCSE report? Yes, that was page 17. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah, they talk so about I, the two main just, categories. Just just making just finding you in my notes. <laughs> because actually it's interesting. You go and you you look then at the new lines report on page 53 and page 54. It gets it gets interesting because they they are sort of inclusive, but they separate them actually into four separate categories. Um that you know they could fit into these other ones, but the children deemed orphans by the Russian state, unaccompanied children, i.e., those who have separated from their parents either due to non-war-related family family circumstances or due to the war. Um, let's also include in that um, <laughs> children who are separated from unaccompanied children who are separated from their parents during the filtration process. Yeah, that. Um, and then three would be children under the care of the Ukrainian state in institutions, so children who are in orphanages, and uh, children with children with clear guardianship. Um, even though they have like the family available, they are still taking them if they're in like a technical school or something like that away from home. I've heard stories of that more than once. Um, so there there are a few different categories, obviously that they use to be able to um, qualify these people, these kids for deportation. Um, but you know, what interesting then goes to, you've got the categories of who the children are, but then you go into the grounds for transfer. So why is it that they need to be transferred? And, and that, that is where you get into some in interesting things. Evacuation for security reasons, transfer for the purpose of adoption or foster care, temporary stays in so-called recreation camps. That was from the OCSE report. And again, they they uh, be they overlap between OCSE and New Lines, but the New Line says for adoption or forced foster care, to stay in recreational camps for security reasons and for medical care. Um, so they're just slightly different, but they pretty much fill together because um, the OCSE considers the medical uh, the medical care under the under the recreation camps. So they they really mesh together very well. And we've seen, um, I at least have seen pictures repeatedly, especially in Melitopol, um, even from this summer, where kids are being taken to these camps for recreation. And what else ends up happening um, then is in uh, again, Nagar, again, I can never say the word, the, the town that is built, the town that is built for the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant that starts with an E. Anerhodar. Anerhodar. Thank you. I, I always want to put the G sound in there and it just doesn't come out my mouth right. Um, but there, um, so a few months ago, they, uh, they were having the children, like at school, go through, you know, little physicals. 
and um, just about every single one of those kids uh, was found to have a medical issue that they needed to go to Russia to have addressed. And so that was one of the reasons that they used for taking a bunch of the children out of there to Russia. And, uh, and so these are sort of examples um, where parents are talked into or not really given a choice to send their kids to recreation camps or they are put through physical examinations and they say, oh, this child has this medical problem and we need to send them to Russia for medical care. These are the kinds of things that happen in order to get these children transferred to Russia. And so, so yeah, those are, those are some of the categories and I'm sure we'll go into more of it. Go ahead, Gina. I'm going to say Belarus has also been complicit here. Uh, because some of these camps are in Belarus, and, and the Wall Street Journal covered that back in August. Foreign Policy did, and I remember seeing a um, a piece on, I believe it was Nexta was the site. Nexta TV had a clip of these two popular Belarusian singers singing to Ukrainian children, and then they were saying. God, something to the effect of, you know, God bless Putin, may Zelensky die or something like, I mean, it was just, it was wild. You almost couldn't believe you were seeing this. So uh, I want to make sure that, that Belarus gets its fair share of uh, responsibility for, for, you know, colluding with Russia in trying to destroy the identity of Ukrainian children. Absolutely. And it is, it is something that has come to light. And I believe just recently, there have been calls for the ICC to issue an arrest warrant for uh, Lukashenko, like, like there has been for Vladimir Putin and for Lavola Belova. And it seems to me that he, he probably deserves it. I believe he has actually openly said that, yes, they take the children and they will continue to take the children. And uh, the circumstances aren't necessarily always as clear with with Belarus, but I believe that they are the same. I have no problem believing that. You know, it, it, I also believe that there are probably some families um, that, depending on where they were in Ukraine, may have, you know, families who were more Russia aligned probably did um, leave and go to Belarus and leave and go to Russia. Um, at the beginning of their the full-scale conflict for um, independently of their own choice. But that, I think, is a smaller majority of the number of people who have been forcibly moved to Russia and to Belarus. And I, know, I am sure, certain, that the number of children in Russia that, that this has happened to and the number of families in Russia is higher than Belarus. But I do believe that Belarus has been complicit in the, the movement um, of, of children um, from probably before the beginning of the full-scale invasion, just as they have been complicit by letting um, Russia fire missiles from their territory and launch planes and helicopters from their territory. Um, so I, I see that they are very complicit in, in many aspects here. And I, I do feel like that there need to be some arrest warrants issued for, for some of those people, too. Um, so but before we get too far off the off the trail there, Nancy, do you have anything to add here? Or are you still working on this 
thread. I apologize. <laughs> the I think I've got the thread covered for now. <clears throat> so I think we're good there. And uh, yeah, you guys covered everything in that section that I had highlighted or or noted. So I think we're good. Okay, well, just uh, just because I, I picked up on it today in the OCSE report, um, th there are some things here, and I want to just make sure really quick here. There are there are some laws that Russia has very very specifically passed regarding the ease of of citizenship and the age of children. Um, but go ahead, James. Um, yes, uh, I just wondered if um, they, uh, and maybe this is off topic a little too much, but if they've identified uh, or resolved where these um, camps are, or are those all broken up now? I understood and saw a map a long time ago of camps along um, the border of Russia, and it stretched a long way. So are those all gone now? And, and if that's off topic, just never mind. It's not an important question. And then also uh, the the missile group that uh, the missile launching group in Russia, they were charged individually, I thought, with crimes. But I, I know not this, but this wouldn't be the first time, right, that they'd tra be charging individual soldiers. So um, I'm just impressed with the progress that's going on uh, across the board, but I'll, I'll let it go. Yeah. Um, for any, the maps of where the camps are that I have seen came from the February 14th Yale report and, um, and they stretched all the way to Siberia. They, they stretched practically all the way to North Korea even though North Korea has a very, well, I think they probably did stretch all the way to North Korea, even though North Korea has a very small border with, with Russia. Um, there, there are kit, there are camps that, that stretch, that go a very long way. And, uh, and that is, that is, you know, part of it, it's sort of drifting here a little bit again, but that's okay. Um, that is part of, the problem in locating these children, you know, they say they're going to be taken to a camp in Crimea, but then, with, then when they don't return the children, the children start moving from camp to camp to camp to different locations to make it more difficult to find them. So, and uh, just a quick um, follow up, I, I was wondering if they are still pretty active, <clears throat> or you know, I, I don't know how many more kids they could get out of. Crimea, maybe they still are. I don't know, but I just was wondering if we knew if those camps were still active and held kids, or had they all moved on and been placed. I don't know that we'll know that answer for sure until we get another report like the Yale report. Um, I would imagine that they are still active um, because they were taking kids to camp this summer from Melitopol, and I would bet from other occupied cities and other occupied areas they were you know i was watching a big huge group of kids with their parents and their luggage standing waiting for the bus getting ready to be moved um taken to camp for two weeks that probably lasts um for a whole lot longer than that because that is typically what happens so thank you yeah no problem james um 
Now, I did mention some of the laws that, that have been changed in, in one of those laws. Um, it, they, they specifically have to do with applying for recognition of a child under the age of 14 as a citizen of Russia, as well as the procedure for relinquishing citizenship for Ukraine. The latter procedure has been further regulated and simplified by the law on the particularities of legal status of citizens of Russia on um, who have citizenship of Ukraine, which was adopted in March of this year. Um, so under Article 1-2 of this law, the renunciation of Ukrainian citizenship for children under 14 takes place based on the application by their parents or other legal guardians. And mind you, when some of these kids are sent to camp, they are uh, their parents are forced to sign powers of attorney, which of course then I think would make whoever holds that power of attorney the legal guardian, um, including representatives of institutions where they were placed without them uh, being able to influence the procedure. So some of these kids are basically being made, well, I think a lot of these kids, if not most at all, um, of these kids are being made Russian citizens without having any say in if that is something that they want or not. And uh, they are passing laws and, and Vladimir Putin is giving decrees that make this, uh, make this process easier. And uh, so, yeah, just wanted to point that out, too. They're changing the laws. They are adapting the laws to make it easier to to um, to make Ukrainian children Russian citizens. So, you know, we're talking here about some some things that that are the things that are happening to take the children to Russia and to the occupied territories, and we're talking about the things that are, are done to make it easier to make them Russian citizens. And I hope that at this point you're starting to be able to see how this is going all the way to the top, that Vladimir Putin himself is showing intent by changing the laws to make some of these processes easier. Oh, Lexi, I was just about to call on you and you dropped. Okay. Nancy or Gina, do you have anything to add? No, I was just going to second your point, the fact that, you know, you see Putin intentionally changing laws to help erase the, you know, Ukrainian identity of these children. It, it's, it shows intent. That's genocide to eliminate a people, destroy their identity. He's trying to do it with the stroke of a pen. Yeah. And so have we covered then, I think, how these children are being deported to Russia. Have we looked at that? Pretty good. Is there anything anybody wants to add or ask? Okay. And I get silence. Lexi wants to come back up. I'm going to see if she wants to ask a question. Because then I think, you know, even though we have touched a little bit on what happens to the Ukrainian children while they are in, when once they get to Russia or to these camps, or to Crimea, or to the occupied territories, which of course includes Crimea. Um, so, so what happens to them then? And we have touched on that a little bit as far as guardianship versus adoption. Um, but 
but I'm I'm thinking of the more um, emotional. What happens to them as far as military training? What happens to them as far as indoctrination? What happens to um, to them as far as those kinds of things? Um, Nancy or Gina, I don't know if I'm going off in a direction that you're not expecting or not. I'm just sort of shooting from the hip here. So um, please correct me or direct me in a different direction if you would like. No, I was thinking, do you want to talk about some of New Line's mentions, a couple of uh, experiences recounted by children who were returned? And we could also, at some point, as I said, talk about what these children are experiencing from a psychological and emotional or cultural level. I could get into that based on my conversation with the psychologist I spoke with earlier, who is the, the oh, trauma absolutely. expert. So let me know That'll which way good. you want to go. <laughs> okay. Well, just to give That's an good. idea. Yeah. From page 55 of the new lines report, you know, some of the children have recounted when they've come back. And I think these incidents are telling that, you know, one boy, um, was told by Russian state representatives he would only be returned to his home in Izum if Russian forces recaptured the city. That's a traumatic thing to tell a child, you know. I mean, just think of this from the child's perspective. Another boy was told he would not return home due to his, quote, pro-Ukrainian views. One girl said her group at a camp in occupied Crimea was told they were, quote, not allowed to speak about Ukraine. Another boy reported that his class was told Quote, Ukrainians are terrorists. They kill people. The same boy said camp officials burned a girl's Ukrainian flag. A girl reported that the head of camp security, together with occupation police forces, told a girl to cut a sweater that read glory to Ukraine. When she refused, the head of security cut it himself with scissors. Um, you know, I mean, and I think that one thing to keep in mind is think of what that is like for a child, any of these events. The psychologist that I spoke with today is Dr. James Black, who actually was a colleague of mine when I worked for the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. And he has about 30 some years of experience working with traumatized and adjudicated youth in the city of Philadelphia. And he's been quoted internationally as an expert on the impact of gun violence too, on the psychological development of kids. But some of the highlights that he told me today um, to think of and, and what these children, no matter where they have been taken, whether it's, you know, in, in still in the occupied, temporarily occupied territories, whether they've been distributed throughout Russia or taken to Belarus. The first thing he said you have to think of is attachment. You're severing critical, critical attachments and bearing in mind that many of these children have already had to live through relentless shelling, humanitarian, you know, crises, just the constant threat of death. So you're not going into this in the, the most uh, serene of, of states. You know, you've already been traumatized. And when you rip a child away from everything and everyone he or she has known, you know, and especially in those first, you know, few years of life, I mean, in developmental psychology, I'm no expert in that. But, you know, I mean, th there are still some pretty clear stages that people can identify of what you do when in life, when you form attachments and, you know, critical thinking skills and develop trust in other human beings. And 
you've taken all that way away from them. And how do you form attachments going forward is, is the question. The other thing that these children may be haunted by, as he said, is, you know, you're suddenly torn from the people you love by hateful people. And then you're wondering, will they come and save me? Will my loved ones come and save me? You know, where are they? Can they find me? And, you know, how it depends on the child's innate resiliency. I mean, every child is different. They have their own personalities and there are different factors that allow for greater resiliency in situations. But at the same time, how, how could a child not be haunted thinking, where are my mother and father? Where are my loved ones to save me from this? So imagine the swirl of emotions they, they must be feeling. And actually, Jim Black, the, the clinical psychologist I was speaking with said, and this is a quote, in some ways it's worse than death because you know that your loved ones are still alive, but you don't know what happened to them. You don't know where they are. You don't know if they're going to get you know, you back. And on, you know, at least in death, horrific as it is, there is a sense of closure, but you don't get that when you've had, when you're separated involuntarily from a loved one. And then in terms of the programming, when you're being told, not only have you been ripped away from everyone that you love and your familiar surroundings and and your extended friends and family, your pets, everything that, you know, your land, what you called home and your culture, your way of life, now you're thrust into a situation where your identity is being denigrated and you're being told you don't speak the right language, you don't sing the right songs, you don't sing the right national anthem, you don't dress the right way, and you don't like the right foods, and you don't worship the right God. That is incredibly damaging. How does a child find stability in the midst of that? then you're being told that your being isn't valid, isn't worthwhile. And you have to question everything that you've been told about your life for a young child or a teen or even a young adult to have to experience that and say, well, everything I knew about my past life was wrong. According to these people who have taken me against my will, it's, I mean, the word he used was cruel and then to, to fast forward into what the healing process might look like, the problem is you severely damage their ability to form attachments. Almost defensively, you would want to just say, I don't know if I can trust anyone in this. I mean, I've had my world ripped out from under me. And then I was in this place where I was told I was bad, I was wrong. But if I do certain things, I might get ahead. And yet we know from some of the accounts that even when children tried to comply with some of this, I mean, it's on a basis of, well, you're terrible because you're Ukrainian. Now you have to act this way and it's still never good enough. And, and you know, th- there's just a, a sense of hopelessness that's going to set in. De- redeveloping trust and learning to process that trauma, even for the children who have come back. And there is always hope. And I do believe that. And there are many wonderful people out there who are working hard to make sure, and not the least of which are these children's loved ones, to make sure these children who have been able to be brought back are healed. But we are looking at years of damage and trauma to these children, which just, again, compounds the the terrible cruelty that Russia has visited upon them through these deportations, through these attempts at reprogramming and brainwashing. 
So I just offer that as ways for people to think. And if we have any psychologists in the audience or, or clinical social workers or anyone who can speak to that in more detail, I would love to hear from you because to me, as I process this, it's, it's very, very hard to stay calm and to, to get back to that. We have to present this logically. So at least when we can think about it in these clinical terms, maybe it helps us do that and process logically why we need to keep forging forward and holding Russia accountable to international law here. Thanks. And, you know, we're talking about, in some of these instances, the the um, the things that a child will remember. We're talking about children who will remember um, remember their family, children who will remember their parents or their brothers, their sisters, um, their country. Um, you know, uh, the, the, going going to some of the stories that I've heard first. And then I'll come back to this because I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, and it's it's not a problem. I didn't expect it. Yes, sort of kind of made me sweat with some memories here. Um, literally sweating, but that's okay. Um, I know what it's all about. And no, it's it's okay. I know what it is. And, uh, and, and I, I think it helps to inform this conversation too. But, but stories that I've heard from children or from kids who have been returned or from the parents of kids, young kids who have been returned. Things like being made to stand basically in your underwear in the cold, get up at four o'clock in the morning and sing the Russian national anthem for a long period of time because you needed to learn the Russian national anthem. And if um, you got it wrong in any way, you were punished. These are the kinds of things that happen in these camps. Um, you know, I tell the story and I've told the story, I'm sure in this time frame, I tell this story all the time about an interview that I saw with a woman, a Ukrainian woman whose, whose child was returned. Her circumstances were that she was uh, in the in the Ukrainian armed forces and uh, in Mariupol area. And she ended up, she and her husband were both in the armed forces and they ended up being taken as POWs. But while they were serving, they had left their daughter with a probably five around at that age or so. They had left their daughter with a um, with with family in that area. Well, instead of evacuating, they moved to a village still just right outside Mariupol. And when the parents were freed as POWs, they went to get their child back. They tried to get their child back. And the family had said, no, we're not letting you have your child back. This child is now Russian. And um, they had sent the child uh, to, to a uh, school, to a Russian school, of course, in, in the Mariupol area. And after a lot of fighting and a lot of working on it, um, they were able to get the girl back. But now the little girl believes that Uncle Vovo is president of the world. And she will tell anybody that, even though they're living in Western Ukraine now. In about a year, that's how indoctrinated this child was. She 
doesn't like to speak Ukrainian. She wants to only speak Russian. These are the kinds of things that happen to young children's minds. And these are children who can still remember their parents. And I don't know what they told her about where her parents went. But, um, you know, the same kinds of things that, that you pointed out, Gina, are things that things that I have heard also. And, and they are all very, very good points. And, you know, some of these children, I don't, I am certain are ending up because when you think of children who are already in orphanages in Ukraine and are wards of the state of Ukraine, who end up going to to an, a Russian orphanage, and we've seen over the years the different conditions of Russian or, orphanages, of orphanages all over the world. I have a friend who adopted a child um, from an, uh, an, an Eastern European country that was formerly under, um, was, was a former communist country, is a former, former communist country, um, whose child had severe, severe attachment disorder. Um, and, and she was, I think, three or four when, when they got her. Um, and it took so much hard work, so much hard work um, to get her to a good and stable place. But I wanted to go actually even farther back because what you hit in me is um, something that I call a primal wound. And it is a wound actually that is um, caused by the separation of a mother and a child. Um, and and it, is, it is something that... Uh, it is, it is something that has been studied a little bit in adoption um, as far as that goes. But the way that it's described, but I just want, to, I want you to think of this as not necessarily as the, as, as the, way, that, um, the way that it would apply to you know, a, a separated at birth child, but I, a child who is probably up to one years old or you know, maybe even two children who know who their parents are, but not, not the way that a five-year-old does, not the way, not remembers the way that a five-year-old would remember. But it, this theory posits that there is a primal wound that develops when a mother and a child are separated. This specifically um, talks about shortly after birth, but I believe that it can, it can go on for a little while after that. It describes the mother and child as having a vital connection, a vitally connected relationship, which is physical, psychological, physiological, and it, and this is the disruption of those bonds. Um, uh, and those bonds, I think, can can probably go be strung in other places, and that 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 um, that that can be impactful in ways that people don't realize through their entire lives. And, and I just, uh, as, as a person who was adopted at birth, um, I can see some of the signs of these kinds of things in my life. And I can tell you, even being adopted into an extremely loving home, very, very loving home, which I apologize. I don't get that feeling from most Russian families and they're not technically adopting these children as we've learned there being guardians of these children um and in knowing that you know 
being able to logically think that my birth mother probably did what was best for me. I still grew up thinking that I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't good enough to keep, that there was some reason somebody didn't want me. There was some reason um, there was something wrong with me. So somebody didn't want me. I can go on, you know, coming up with all of these reasons why I wasn't good enough. Um, so then, you know, take that from a person who was adopted at a week old into a very good and healthy family that loved them and adored them and, and, um, was very supportive of them through, of them throughout the, throughout their entire life. But take that now and put that into a war situation where you are a child from zero to maybe three. I don't know. I don't know this psycho psychology stuff well enough. And they have experienced war and even older, they have experienced war and now they are being taken away. They're being removed to Russia. They are being told that their nationality, the Ukrainians want to kill them, that they are terrorists, that their parents don't love them, that, um, that they need to learn Russian because Russian is better, that they are not Ukrainian, that they are now Russian, that they are being put in this family and this is their family now and to forget the other family. And we can keep on creating this list over and over and over and over and over again. And we can add to it, I think, almost endlessly because a child, oh, let, let's go all the way from zero to 18 years old can sit there and say, why wasn't I good enough? Why, why did this happen to me? And, and they build this anger and they build this resentment, the older that they get and, and, uh, and being able to be brainwashed into seeing Ukraine, the way Russia sees it will do damage to them for the rest of their lives. And these children unfortunately, I believe, are going to be so impacted that they have a hard time going back. And I know they do. I know they have a hard time going back because I have read the stories of early teenagers who do end up going back, who are extremely angry, extremely angry that they were made to go back to Ukraine because they are now Russian. I'm going to stop because I've gone on for a little bit and I don't know how much sense I made but that's okay. I think the, the main message goes apart. There are impacts from birth to adulthood that will last for a while from the kinds of actions that Russians are taking to take these children away from their family, to take these children away from their culture, to indoctrinate them, to brainwash them, to give them military training, to kill their own countrymen and their own families. Gina, go ahead. I just want to thank you for being so, so vulnerable and so profound in your sharing. That was incredible. That really, and I just thank you for your courage, Prince. I really do. Um, you know, as you were sharing that, it, it just brought me back to what Dr. Jim Black was telling me today. And, and his takeaway was after those kinds of experiences, and you were talking about it from you know, a situation, as you said, even entering into a loving family. But when you think of what these children 
have been and continue to experience, the takeaway is how do you feel safe in the world again? And I think that's one of the, the, the worst things you could ever steal from a child is that sense of safety. You know, that sense of people, I'm in a safe space. People are looking out for me. I'm loved. If you deprive a child of that, the consequences are lifelong. And it's not that those consequences can't be with time and care and therapy and love and consistency. It's not that those consequences can't be overcome. It's not a, it's not a life sentence, but it will take years. It will take years. And the thing is that healing doesn't just take place on its own. Think of too, when you're talking about children coming back and it's a difficult reintegration back into their families, that takes a toll on their loved ones too, you know? And then that kind of has, that can have a ripple effect, you know, in, in the wider family and in society. So if you really think about just how far ranging this of the many atrocities Russia has committed, just this alone would be enough, you know, to, to, to just this alone would be incomprehensibly horrific. How much more so that every single condition of the genocide convention has been violated by Russia and Ukraine. But uh, I, I think too, Ukraine wisely is already laying the groundwork for the long healing that's going to need to take place. And I commend Madame Zelenska's, you know, efforts to, to very early on incorporate psychological healing in her foundation and all of her initiatives. She has really just gotten her arms around this and is just leading the way here. So, um, you know, maybe in a future episode, we might look at some of that work and how it might relate to the healing from, you know, at, after, you know, the genocide has been declared and the wars won as, as we move through that healing process, maybe we can have a conversation about that at some point. Go ahead, James. Yes. And, uh, and that develop any of those developmental stages of childhood, there's things that are expected that are going to happen in the child's kind of growth in the world. And, uh, the, the stressors that are around us affect the how successfully we do that, uh, among other things. There's a lot of things that go into kind of becoming a whole person. Um, but the cost for the kids is so great because it affects every other aspect of their life. You know, probably um, they're not going to do as well in school. They're probably not going to make as many friends um, you know, it goes on. And, and we do know from the society of Russia that they're liable to be getting beaten and, uh, worse. And so, um, in the accounting, I, you, you can't really account for things, but, uh, I guess I put, um, mental health, having it as something that is one of the highest, things that's achievable in the world is you, if you have your mind and you have a you know a good feeling about yourself and the world and you've you know and you have love and you have support that make all this possible it's the greatest thing and to, so so um, to lose those things 
in your childhood. It's uh, it's terrible. So I, I don't you know, you can't account for that. Um, but I certainly think that those kind of observations have a place uh, at any um, time that people are talking about, like, what does Russia owe us? It's not something that Russia can recover uh, for Ukrainians who've been treated this way, but it is something that, um, you know, should be added to the cost because what I see is a, a lot of people are going to need therapy for a long time. And, um, you know, I don't expect much from Russia at all in way of reparations. Honestly, I don't think they're going to do a damn thing if they can help it, but, uh, it should be in the accounting. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I just to, because I don't know that I made this clear, some of the biggest issues that can come from this kind of thing, and I think Gina did touch on it, but I want to reiterate, I want to reiterate it, reiterate it, I want to comment on it also, is trust and abandonment issues. And the abandonment issues can creep up on you in ways that you don't expect, in ways that you don't um you don't see coming and it can affect your life for a long long time because that fear of abandonment will stick with you and even though these kids may may have gone through things differently they are still going to see why didn't my mom why didn't my dad why didn't my family come back and get me and that will feed into their abandonment, especially with the things that Russia tells them. So they will have a hard time trusting and they will feel abandoned and they will feel not worthy. And those those are things I think that just, just really um, highlight. So anyway, um, go ahead, Dan. And Dan dropped to listener. Okay, Nancy or Gina, anything to add here? I'm looking actually for a number. Somebody sent me a message that, uh, and I know I have the number here somewhere. I just have to find it. Go ahead, Gina. One thing I was going to say, this is not necessarily demonstrating intent, but something to keep in mind. It relates to when I had mentioned uh, Samantha Power's book, A Problem from Hell, America and the Age of Genocide. One of the key points she makes in that book, looking at genocides historically, and this was written before this current uh, genocide in Ukraine, is political will in nations to counter genocide that's taking place. And, and when I say political will here, I'm thinking too of the Chibok girls, which you may remember were kidnapped. Um, there were some 200, I think it was 260, 280, I have to look that up quickly. But of the Chibok girls who were kidnapped in Nigeria by militants, there are some 90 that still have never been returned. And that is a sign of a lack of political will. 98 girls remain in captivity. Um, some did manage to escape. And, and I remember those campaigns when that took place. You know, that this was back in 2014. It was 276 girls. And so many people were saying, bring back our girls. I think that was the hashtag. And there was enough inertia in the political landscape there. And just a, though there had been international outcry, there just wasn't enough to move it. And as a result, you know, those 98 girls are still in captivity. 
And we have to look at our history here and say, we can't let this continue to happen here. However many of these children are in Ukraine, and there are unfortunately far more than we can count right now. I mean, the, the numbers could just be well in excess of anything we've talked about tonight. But we cannot allow that to continue. And again, I know that's not necessarily talking about the convention and intent, but I just hold that out there to say, to just show how urgent this is and that we can't stop now. And if fully holding Russia accountable to international law, it's just critical. It's critical for so many reasons. And among those reasons is getting every single one of those children back where they belong into Ukraine. Yeah, but you can also see the difficulty that Russia is making to try to get those kids back by changing their names, by changing their birth dates, by changing their location of birth, um, these kinds of things. And, and one of the things I did want to drift into um, tonight is drifting into the recommendations from the OCSE report, the recommendations for Russia. Um and and what what some of that means and and there's also a little part of the geneva convention that i wanted to drift into um and uh and and because because i think they matter and they they show alternate solutions that could have happened instead of what has happened um but russia didn't do those things and by russia showing the intent to keep these children in russia um, it has, I think, proven the intent of the of genocide. You know, there. My brother said to me, "So what are they doing? Trying to take these kids to make them into good soldiers so they can go fight for Russia?" And you know, I of course explained to him, at some ages that's not possible, but at some ages, yeah, that is definitely what they've done. That's definitely what they've done. You think of a child who was, uh, you know, ten years old in 2014, who was. Uh, taken to Russia and then, you know, given guardianship and or put in a home or put in a military school or put in whatever kind of situation. But now 19 years old and is probably fighting on the front lines in Ukraine against his own countrymen. But he has been indoctrinated and taught to be uh, to fight for Ukraine, for Russia. And uh, so, yeah, in some ways, I do see that as part of their intention. Um, Dan, go ahead. I um Thank you, Prince. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you, Gina. Uh, especially Gina, I love, I'm learning so much. Um, as far as these kidnapped children, um, are, do they have any percentages to know um, how many are getting lost in the cracks if they can't find documentation and stuff? Um, I've been hearing rumors and stuff of uh, children, young teenagers, getting sold off into, um, I mean, Russia actually selling some of these children off into the sex slave trade. Um, is this true? And do they have any idea? I mean, they can't all be in adoptions. Um, I just, I just can't, I don't know. I don't know. Anyways, that was my question. I, I'm wondering how many end up outside of Russia. And do we know that? Or do we know anything about that? And with that, I'll drop down. Thanks a lot, ladies. Go ahead, Gina. I can tell you from what Professor Clementine Fujimara told me that um, 
you know, she certainly had seen in her research there, and again, this, she has not been able to go back since, and she said she will never be able to go back or, you know, she's been told by both Russians and Ukrainians, you just, she's not been sanctioned, but she can't get back there to complete any more field work on this. Um, it would just simply be at the risk of her life at this point, most likely. Um, but, uh, she said that, you know, certainly she encountered vulnerable children who were in, Actually, in some cases, and I thought this was really telling, and, and I know this is going to sound a little strange, but actually voluntarily entering into prostitution because the alternative of trying to stay in the institutions or in uh, any other arrangements was just so intolerable that they were living on the street to just um, to survive. So I, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that these children, Ukrainian children who are being forcibly deported and attempting, you know, Russians are attempting to brainwash them and to, and to you know, erase their Ukrainian identity. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility to think that they're being abused, that they could be sexually abused, that they could be, you know, there's very high rates of alcoholism in, in Russia. And that's, that's, you know, by even Russian documentation, although it's hard to get straight numbers out of them. But, you know, more than one Russians, you know, sources in the, in the past few years have, have pointed to that and researchers have noted that there are very, very high rates of alcoholism there. So when you have alcoholism, you know, and I, I grew up with that in my family, I know that that can lead to abusive situations. So that that alone indicates a high risk factor that these children could be subject to abuse. You know, in many ways, we just don't know. But you're you're not you're not starting off with a perception by Russia that Ukrainian children are of equal rights and footing. You know, I think that you look, because, of course, if they if they respected Ukrainian children, they wouldn't be stealing them and trying to destroy their country in the process. So if that's the basis, can it get any better from there? You know, I, I don't discount the possibility, of course, that there there may be some, you know, decent Russian people who, you know, want to try to love, you know, these children. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be generous here because I just think that if you really love children, you wouldn't try to do this in the first place. But I, I want to allow for that possibility. At the same time, you know, I, I don't think that we can expect that this is the basis for a loving, safe environment for any child let alone a child who was stolen, let alone who a child who whose native land you were trying and loved ones you were trying to destroy along with their own identity. Thank you, Gina. Go ahead for every child. Um, you know, it's I think I'll just listen for a while because uh, uh, what what's happening to them right now is just it just leaves me uh, really very much speechless. I, I, I uh, I'll just leave it at that. Thanks. Go ahead, James. Hi, for every child. Good to see you up here. Um, my my comment or addition is that um, when I looked at, into this, there's an extremely high rate of um, fetal alcohol syndrome in Russia and especially in the orphanages 
and it is just you know um it's just symptomatic of what really is going on and the fact that fetal alcohol syndrome many times kids they've got problems right they've got all kinds of problems because their brain is affected so um it also probably leads to the high rate of kind of child on child kind of abuse because that happens um, in Russia a lot. And it happens because that's the way the adults act. And now um, with the domestic law changes, you know, that, that came up, was that last year, I think, that allows for domestic abuse by the man? Um, I think just portend just a disaster. And uh, this is this is sort of cheeky to say, but I'll say it. It's like, wh- why don't we use the phrase Ruski Lakmar more often, which means um, Russian nightmare, because it, this is just, it is. This is a nightmare to walk in and look around and see all the ways that Russia is mistreating well, everybody, right? No, it, it, it's these kids we're talking about right now, but nobody gets treated well. It's it's a disaster there. So, um, anyways, uh, to keep to the topic, I'll just stop talking. Thanks. Um, go ahead, Lexicon. Lexicon, you've been having a hard time coming up. I'm sorry. Didn't yeah, I didn't either. hear my name. Yeah, I didn't hear my name. Um, you know that I've uh, I've been trying to stay awake, and I'm sure I've slept through certain parts so I could be off topic. I mean, this is of course a power trip on Russia's part, like rape. This is a matter of power. What you're saying, what Russia's saying to the Ukrainian people is, we can take your children from you. We can take what's most dear to you. And I think that uh, that that side of the abuse is really important to underscore. I don't know if I'm on topic. I had wanted all along to ask about the question of intent. We always say, and I'm, you may have already uh, treated this, that legally we say about these crimes that intent is the most difficult thing to prove and that in the case of uh, kidnapping children, it may, it's the clearest one. But I wanted to ask how, how the lawyers deal with this because, of course, what this uh, thing woman is saying is we're protecting these children from war. <laughs> we make war on them and then we protect them. from. Anyway, what they're going to argue in the courts, of course is that they have taken these children from a dangerous situation in order to preserve their life and uh, safety and happiness. And I wondered uh, if you've already dealt with it okay or if it's out of place. But Or can I ask about that? How do they, legally we deal with this question of intent and the excuse of protection? Thank you, Lexi. And um, I will, I actually said that I wanted to touch on the Geneva Convention. It it actually just happens to have to do with this. And um, so in in drifting a little bit here to, to what the, um, what the recommendations from the OCSE report are, I'm just going to read this one real quick, urgently seek assistance in good offices 
of a third country to bring about the end of the practice of forcible transportations, transfers, or deportation of Ukrainian children to the temporarily occupied territories and the Russian Federation in accordance with Article 24.2 of the Geneva Convention and ensure full respect of the right to family reunification as stipulated in a different convention, but it's the it's the Geneva Convention that I want to focus on here. And so because of that, I do have this little bit of the Geneva Convention up. And this is um, regarding taking children. So the parties to a conflict shall take the necessary measures to ensure that the children under 15 who are orphaned or separated from their families as a result of war are not left to their own resources and that their maintenance and the exercise of their religion, their education are facilitated in all circumstances. Their education shall, as far as possible, be entrusted to persons of a similar culture. I mean, we're seeing things all right here. But um, this is the part that matters the most to me. And this is the part that Russia could do. Russia, I believe, is obligated to do. And Russia is not doing. The parties to the conflict shall facilitate the reception of such children, such as the children they are wanting to remove for their own safety. They shall facilitate the reception of children in a neutral country for the duration of the conflict with the consent of the protecting power, if any, and under due safeguards for the observance of principles stated in the first paragraph. Bottom line, what Russia should be doing, they're saying these children are in a dangerous area and so we're taking them to Russia for their own protection. Okay, fine, you know what? Take them to Russia for their own protection. But the first thing that you do after that is you take them to a third party country for their protection so that they can be moved back to Ukraine. And that is something that has been recommended by the OCE to the, um, to the Russian Federation and as something that they need to do, something that they need to implement. And it's not happening. And, and so, you know, this report was issued in May. Um, and, you know, I, I bet you Finland, I bet you Norway, I bet you Sweden, I bet you Let's list off the countries. There are a few examples of very small groups. I'm going to say under 50 children who are in Georgia. But the way that ended happen, happening was the facilitation of the Ukrainian guardian who was with them. Um, but this should be happening on a large scale. This should be happening with um, third party countries. Um, you know, the way that Turkey behaved with the prisoners of war and, and taking care of them for several months. I can't believe I'm saying I would actually trust Turkey to do this, but they need to be out of Russia and Russia has been told to do that. Um, and I can talk, talk about part of the other proper, the other part of part of this problem, too, but I am going to go to Gina first. No, I was just going to say, I'm so glad you brought that up, Prince, about the Geneva Convention. But I mean, really, it's it's just almost it's appallingly disingenuous for Russia to say we're removing them for their safety. You don't 
you like that that just undermines the whole purpose of the law right there you don't start a conflict you don't make war on someone and try to present yourself as the hero because you remove the children from it that's just like not even tenable you know um i i don't even say you could get away with that on a technicality and again i'm not trying to be some you know present myself as anything other than a journalist and a person who's researching this but i don't think that anyone buys that and i think maria uh, lavova Bolova has said that in interviews that we were just trying to take them out of a conflict zone it's like the conflict exists because of your country so it's it's just almost um, as I said, it's just appallingly disingenuous. I'll add one thing as well too. I was looking at an article recently in the Atlantic, and it was referencing um, the children. And there was a legal analyst at a human human rights organization in Ukraine, Z M I N A. And the legal analyst was Anisia Siniuk. And she said, hiding that they are Ukrainian in the system, this is the Russian um, adoption, quote unquote, system, shows that the Russians have no intention to ever give them back. And things like that play into proof of intent, you know, because if they intended to just protect them or just give them back, they wouldn't be changing their names and covering up and trying to basically hide and conceal the provenance of these children. And, and they wouldn't be trying to make them untraceable. So doing that is not just part of erasing their culture and part of cultural erasure, but it's also directly related to um, intent here as well from from what she was saying from a legal perspective so i wanted to share that go ahead gina just to add to that the save ukraine website actually recounts a story of a young boy named i hope i'm pronouncing this correctly makuta makita who was 10 years old was abducted um from by russians from the oleshki boarding school and in the post on the website he was abducted back in october of last year and he along with other children with disabilities was taken out under that pretext of evacuation but interestingly enough um after much effort um when they were able to get the child back um and i think it was the grandmother on the, in the blog post on the website here, they recount that um, the uh, Lvova Belova is uh, was actually uh, smiling cynically. Spoke to the camera about the fact that she always promotes the reunification of families, but behind the scenes, here she had offered this grandmother trying to get. I believe it was the grandmother trying to get her child back. She had been offered money so that she would stay with the boy in Russia rather than both return to Ukraine. So does this not demonstrate intent? I mean, this is one story right here, but incidents like that where you've got someone saying, don't take your kid back, don't take your grandson back, stay here, we'll, we'll pay you to stay and be Russian. If that's not an attempt to erase the identity and, and restrict people, you know, by a child commissioner, no less. Yeah, there's another item in this article that was noteworthy related to the concealment factor, which was that uh, they had identified 
<clears throat> forcibly transferred children from four months to 18 years old who were listed in a public Russian adoption database that didn't mention their Ukrainian origin. Um, <clears throat> but a Russian dissident outlet ex exposed the fact they were there um, in an article that alleged the children were being made to sew camouflage nets for the Russian military. Um, their, the Russian dissident outlet is iStories and their revelations prompted Russia to scrub the database of all information about the Ukrainian children. So that's one of the risk factors, but again, that concealment and the attempting to hide, um, I think is part of what the lawyers will use to demonstrate intent. And that part actually sent chills through my spine because we all know how hard it's gonna be to find these children, to return them to their families. And if, if they're scrubbing databases, you know, what does that mean? The article at least goes on to say, fortunately, much of that database had already been scraped by at least one group of open source intelligence investigators um, who asked not to be named in order to continue their sensitive work. And such groups are scouring publicly available databases, social media, precision satellite imagery showing location of camps and other sources to track the children. Um, so it's, it's definitely a very sensitive topic um, to try and, and track without um, reflecting how much is being tracked because Russia is trying to um, conceal their steps and, and uh, hide these children. And that's, an even more chilling factor. Go ahead, Gina. I'm, I'm thinking as part of demonstrating intent, one thing that comes to mind is the, the reactions on, by propagandists who, of course, are state-funded in many cases from Russia um, and just the general Russian populace a lot of times, and certainly on the state propaganda, of the reaction to when Ukrainian children have been killed as a result of missile strikes there's a lot of, I remember seeing, um, you know, in some of the strikes, I think, um, I want to say that it's Anton Goroshenko, I'm not sure, but I've seen people point out, Russian, you know, officials who have pointed out, look at the reaction that people have have had to this, you know, this cynicism, this, um, this you know, denigration of, of children, and, and we've certainly seen them, you know, Hit and of course, you know, the major attacks such as the the drama theater in Mariupol. I mean, you know, one would have to wonder if this doesn't show a broad contempt. You know, on the one hand, Russia's saying, "Oh, we're saving these children. We're you know, we're taking them out of combat." Well, what about the ones that you killed? What about the ones that you maimed? What about the ones you sexually assaulted? How does this fit in with your pattern of supposedly trying to, quote unquote, rescue Ukrainian children from a combat you started? You know, if nothing else, I think it shows profound inconsistency in Russia's defense of, of why they are stealing these children. Go ahead, Prince. Absolutely. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, what, what you were saying is, you know, if you want to take these children out for their safety, the best way to do that is take yourself out um, and remove yourself back to Russia where you belong and stop lobbing missiles and bombs and... Uh, you know, stop uh, abusing children and, and on and on and on. And uh, I am actually going to drift really quickly because it, it, it applies here. Um, I'm going to drift really quickly to one of the OCSE recommendations. 
And I keep drifting to this because, you know, we keep on saying there's not enough proof of intent. There's not enough proof of intent. And to some degree, maybe there isn't. I, I have feelings about that too. But what all of these separate reports that are put together with very very good methodology and very good reputation, what these reports are doing is giving evidence, I believe. These reports in and of themselves are little pieces of evidence that will be able to be used by the International Criminal, Criminal Court to prosecute um, genocide in the long run. Because the OCSE can go to the court and say, in our report dated May something 2023, we said, item number four under to the Russian Federation recommendations, without delay, compile, provide, and promptly update comprehensive lists of the names and whereabouts of all children who have been forcibly transferred or deported from Ukraine to temporarily occupied territories and the Russian Federation, specifically indicate in such lists the legal status of each individual child, especially in any cases of adoption or change in fundamental data of the child, for example, name, date of birth, place of birth, in accordance with another article of another thing. Um, to this end, the principle of adoption secrecy must be immediately lifted to allow the provisions of data to appropriate agencies. And then it lists a couple of agencies. So when Russia says, well, nobody told us, which, you know, wouldn't surprise me, the, jet, the, the court can go back and point. The OCSE told you in this report on May, whatever it is, 2023, that this is something that you should do. Now, what Nancy said is all good, and that is all fabulous stuff that, that is being done to try to grab what data that they can, that the Russians may have, that the Russians may be scrubbing. But for the OCE, for a, a, a body, a respected body, to put in a report that you need to make a list, for God's sakes, of who you've taken and where they are and what you call them now, that they didn't do that, in my opinion, also could be part of proving that there, there is intent. Their intent by not taking action to complete that task. Um, so... That that was just a, a little thing that, I, like I said, I wanted to, I, I'm going to drift into this every now and then, I think because it gives some good examples of, of, um, of actions that Russia has been told to take, but they are not taking. So I hope that makes sense. Go ahead, James. Yeah, um, that's these, these are very interesting questions. The whole thing about proving intent. Uh, mens rea comes in, right? That That is the state of mind of the person who is committing the crime or who you think has committed the crime. Did they intend it? Did they intend to run over the person that was in the street or just hit them up by accident, for example? Uh, it's very frustra frustrating to me that we think about um, <clears throat> countrywide, nationwide um, efforts like what Russia has been doing and try to uh, impose on it some of the rules of evidence and, and determination of guilt. So I, I worry about that. And I, I just 
I, I think there's so much evidence such as, um, you know, not, not so much um, perhaps on the point about uh, kidnapping children, but in every other way, I see the allowance of the Russian media to get on the air and then espouse uh, genocide. They've called for it. They've, you know, they have called for drowning children, Ukrainian children, in rivers. Um, you know, so, so I feel like there is so much evidence, right? Uh, where the missiles land. And again, this is not about what the topic right now, but there's so much for every, in every way. I, I can't look at this and say, oh yeah, I'm not really sure. There's just no way I can arrive at that conclusion. Every which way I look at the evidence around the whole picture with, with the kids, it seems evenly, even as strong, um, as any of the other points because they've set it up. You guys have laid it out really well. Why am I going on? You guys laid it out really well. Um, and, and it feels like the evidence is real, really clear. It takes a while to pass along this information. And I understand people don't want to see it uh, for, you know, number one, it's the ugliest stuff in the world. Who the hell wants to look at it? Number two, it's really inconvenient. Um, number three, I'm earning money some other way that would this would get in the way of, you know. So it's it's um, it really is um, difficult. And I don't know that we'll get to uh, convicting everybody. I expect we will. But I hope that there is a great effort to connect uh, the genetics and, you know, at least identify who's who in the future. I don't think that'll be easy either because Russia will be increasingly a closed society. But I, with all the other changes being made to the identity of kids, I, I'm at a loss as to think of how else, um, you know, retrieving them will be. So, uh, pardon me. Actually, I'm not getting choked up. I'm, I had to burp. Pardon me. Um, but I, I am concerned about that whole, um, all that. Anyways, well, thank you. Thank you, James. And, uh, you know, I won't hold it against you. I myself have been in the position to need to burp while uh, co-hosting and speaking. And it can be one of the most interesting uh, interesting things ever. And I know I have, I, I don't know why I can have a sense of humor while talking about these things. And uh, when Mockers comes up this morning and she gets to sleep in today, I hope she has the hiccups. I love her to death, but it's never any fun unless I tease Mockers at times. Um, so uh, where else do we want to take this? I am... Um, I, I am trying to figure out where in my notes that this that this may need to go next. Um, uh, we can talk about how children are returned, um, and I, I think that is is one of the you know we've we've got about forty five minutes or so left, and uh, I think we've we've really hit on on topics of of you know 
which children are being deported, how are they being deported, what happens with them while they're there. I could go over, I suppose, if you want a couple of um, just uh, uh, key findings maybe out of the Yale report if I wrote it down right. Um, but we might we might focus on that another time because the Yale report, I think, is something that has been really underlooked at. Um, but uh, it, it's finding that information. And, you know, I don't know how they found all of this information, but it is um, it is good stuff. And uh, I, I do need to review it again because I haven't looked at it for a while. And, uh, you know, when you take in so much information, let's look, let's do this, okay? Let's let's review just just the highlights of the key findings. I think of the of the Yale report. Do you guys is, are you guys okay with that? Okay. So yeah, and real quick, real so quick, I, uh, the one thing I'll point out is on the thread that I've provided in the nest where the resources are. The section for the Yale report is the link to the overview that includes the link to the full report, but also provides the summary of key findings right there. So uh, along with some easy to follow graphics out of the report. So um, if, if you're not comfortable reading the whole report, take a look at the, um, the link that I provided with those key findings and the graphics. They're very informative. Go ahead, Prince. Are you talking about the 35-page report or a really long, long, long report? The Hold on a second. Let me launch it again. It's the, uh, the Yale report, which is the, yeah, 35 pages. Oh, I'm sitting here talking to a muted mic. Anyway, okay, thank you. That is, that is actually the one that I'm looking at. It's, uh, it's, it's very small print. I need new glasses. Thank God for PDF readers with a zoom option. Um, so, and that's, that's why I pull out of these things this way. Um, okay, so let's go here. The, so the key findings, and, and we need to keep in mind that the Yale report was very, very limited in its what limited. They, the Yale report is only reporting on kids that they could 150% verify. They, I think that they acknowledge that there are more than this. And, and so we're just looking at a small chunk of what is likely there. Um, so more than 6,000 children are in Russian custody. And uh, we know just from, from what Ukraine tells us that it is much more. And then if you want to listen to what Russia tells us, it's uh, a whole, whole lot more. Because uh, Ukraine is saying just under 20,000 children Russia is saying 700,000 to 800,000. Um, and uh, Yale is, is reporting specifically on 6,000 children. There is a network of uh, 43 separate facilities all over Russia. The network of children facilities stretches from one end of Russia to the other. Um, the, um, the furthest one away reaches um, the far east near the Pacific Ocean, 3,900 miles from Ukraine's border. So everywhere, 
from one end of Russia to the other. The primary purpose of these camps appears to be political re-education. Even just 6,000 children who are being there, being put in these camps for re-education is horrifying. But I know it's more. Children from two of the camps have been placed in Russian foster families. Um, so that is that is uh, just one small, small piece. Um, consent is collected under duress and routinely violated. Um, children's return from at least four camps have been suspended. Approximately 10% of the camps identified by, by Yale, the children's uh, return to Ukraine has been suspended. So, yeah, that's, uh, they don't send them back. All levels of the Russian government involved, this one I'll read because this is what, this is what proves the intent. All levels of the Russian government are involved. The operation is centrally coordinated by Russia's federal government and involves every level of government. Yale HLR has identified several dozen federal, regional, and local figures directly engaged in operating and politically justifying the program. Activities of officials allegedly implicated in the operation include logistical coordination, raising funds, collecting supplies, directing camp management, and promoting the program within Russia and the occupied areas of Ukraine. At least 12 of these individuals are not in the, oh, at least 12 of these individuals are not on the U.S. or international sanctions list at the time of this report. And keeping in mind, this report was in February of 2023. So it is it is getting on the older side as far as reports go. A lot, I'm sure, has changed since then, and I'm hoping that they will do an update. But uh, it was uh, quite the eye-opening report when it came out, and it's one that, that I think is still worth referring to. And one I think, like I mentioned before, is something that will be used to prove intent. So those are just the key findings. Um, and, of course, it goes into a little bit more detail. Um, and uh, I, I ran out of time to look, dig deeper into the more detail um, when I was reading through reports. But I thought just mentioning those, those, those highlights um, can, can actually add some stuff because it's the camps and, you know, and the, the moving of children between these camps to make them harder to track and harder to find um, that is part of all of it. So then... We've talked about um, talked about how hard it is for the kids to go through something, go through this, and to live through this, and to recover from this. And I think we'll continue probably a little bit with the recover from this as we talk about the um, how do the children get returned. So how do the children get returned? James, go ahead. Well. Um... Maybe this is off that point a little bit, um, but I I wanted to return to this idea about the other genocides in the world. But I, this that can wait. Um, how do they get returned? Boy, I think that it will be involving some genetic stuff. But other than that, um, making making Russia an offer that they can't refuse. Yeah, 
Go ahead, Gina. Well, in some cases, there are mothers who are risking their lives to go back and get the children. The BBC covered back in May this incredible story of these mothers at the end of May. And, you know, they they are actually kind of going toe to toe, going at their their own risk, um, going through the whole series of interrogations and filtrations and nonsense that they have to go through um, to try to get the children back. And I, you know, I don't have a number as to how many um, have been able to, to be retrieved that way, but there are some very brave people, very brave mothers in particular who have done this, um, you know, to slowly get their children back. So that is one way that is just one way. Um, and I know that there are some other efforts, but that is one way. And of course, we've talked about this earlier, that the Vatican is um, involved in trying to at least negotiate uh, the return of the children. You know, Pope Francis has actually been honest and said that he, he you know, has apologized to, you know, Ukrainian youth in particular, that he was sorry that he could not do more, not youth who had been forcibly uh, deported, but youth who were attending a, um, a, a large religious event in Portugal that the Catholic Church held. And, you know, he's, he's actually said to them, he's sorry he couldn't do more, but focusing on trying to get those children back is, is part of it. And um, Cardinal Tupi from the Vatican, who is, I think, in Beijing now, is supposed to, I read earlier today, he is supposed to uh, head to Moscow next. And I believe he has been tasked with trying to facilitate some of those negotiations to try to get some of the children back. How successful it would be, we don't know. Um, maybe there will be some concessions. I have no idea, but that's another channel that's being explored. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking both long-term and short-term here. And so if we look at the short-term and, uh, I got distracted and didn't look for the most recent number, um, but I bet you I can find it rather quickly. Oh, maybe not because there we go. I knew I could find it rather quickly because they returned 11 more this week on September 12th. Save Ukraine. Re oh, excuse me, 13. On September 12th, Save Ukraine returned 13 more children from the occupied territories of Kherson, Lugansk, Zaporizhia Oblast as part of 11 rescue missions. We've returned 176 children to Ukraine in total due to 11 uh, rescue missions. So we, we, we hear, I hear more details about what Save Ukraine does. And a lot of that is due to um, Mikhailo Kuwit, uh, I can never pronounce his name either. I am awful at pronouncing names, and I think somebody is going to have to make me learn the Cyrillic alphabet in order to be able to do that better. But, uh, and, uh, <laughs> but, but I think um, he is the founder. He is the former ombudsman of of um, of Ukraine, and he he. Uh, he has founded this organization called Save Ukraine. Now, Save Ukraine is very much like you described, Gina. And, and Save Ukraine is, is an organization that helps families, mothers, very typically women, because the men cannot leave the country. 
um, who who want who need who are trying to get their kids back, who are trying to get their their family back. And uh, one of the one of the stories I've heard several stories. Um, and how do you put it? They have to, of course, identify where they are and return them back to Ukraine and um, then document their stories and then to help them recover. So those are the four main goals uh, with Save Ukraine. But let's talk about that first part where it is returning them to Ukraine. And so there are, um, of course, initial contacts between like a mother a mother, a godmother, an aunt, a sister, somebody who has custody of one of those children in Ukraine, in, in the Russian Federation or in the occupied territories. And those kids have not been returned. Um, a lot of these, I think, are from the camp situations where they are not returned when they are supposed to be returned. And somehow they are able to track them down but Save Ukraine then works with them, works with them to be able to put all of the documentation that they have together. They have to be able to prove that that is their child. And the Russian Federation doesn't make that easy. So then you have to take the journey by vehicle, which, go ahead, Gina. Oh, no, go ahead. I was going to talk about some uh, historical parallels for long term. So, yeah, go ahead. I can circle back. Okay. To that. okay. Um, so then there is a long, long journey. And the journey is very long. And I cannot remember exactly the route that they take. Um, and the route um, is a lot of miles. So let's put it this way. So you start out maybe in Odessa, you drive all the way through Ukraine and then somehow get and go, I believe they go through Belarus. They may or may not, they may actually go through like the Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia way. And then they get into Russia and then they drive through Russia to Crimea in a lot of these instances. So you have just driven like a circle in order to drive a much shorter amount of distance. So this is a very, very long and very exhausting trip. It's a very tiring trip. And then, and so they prepare these people for that. Then they prepare these people for interrogations. And these aren't just a, hey, what's your documents? You know, tell us a little bit about this. Tell us a little bit about that. No, these are extensive documents. These are in extensive interrogations and they prep them for these before they leave and the interrogation story that I will never forget is a grandmother who went to retrieve her grandchild her grandson she was interrogated very heavily non-stop for 14 hours she had a heart attack and died yeah so that is how intense some of these interrogations are. And no, her child, the, the, the child that she was trying to bring back to Ukraine was not returned on that trip because she died. So then after 
an extended time, 14 hours, probably more, straight of interrogation by the Russians. And we've we've heard what what interrogations and things from the Russians are like in some instances. And um and so they they then of course possibly get reunited with the child and then they have to take the entire big huge long drive back to Ukraine. I can't imagine driving all the way through Russia to get to wherever they need to go is a real comfortable experience for them either. Um, so then they get back. Well, then I'm going to drift to another story about, about a boy um, whose sister went to retrieve him. And he didn't want to go back. He is a teenager, stubborn, stubborn, hormonal teenager. We know what they're like because we were all one of them. And he uh, refused. He had just gotten placed with a foster family. He said he's Russian. He does not want to go back to Ukraine. He, he uh, was refusing. Um, she somehow talked him into it. I believe there was a, like a, a four-wheeler or something like that involved. Um, I don't know that that ever happened, but at least it got him in the car and to make the journey back to Ukraine. And they have been staying in a apartment in Lviv and been going through intensive therapy to try to get him back to way he to, to the way he was. So you have the journey that is hard on the mother or the sister or the godmother or this aunt or whichever family member. You have what the child has gone through, excuse me, and sometimes deadly for like for the grandmother. Then you, you know, have that whole trip and then you have what the child has gone through. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there's trauma from what the person who went to retrieve the child. There has to be trauma. There is trauma from first not having that child with you. Um, and then from retrieving the child and then from seeing the changes in the child that happened. You know, one of the things that, that comes to mind when I, when I talk about the story of that boy um, you know, he's that he was from Mariupol and he saw death. He witnessed death. He saw it happen. Um, and so that's a trauma to recover from, but I don't believe he was there at the moment that his mother was killed. And so he still has a hard time accepting that she's dead. So, so. I guess what I'm trying to do here is create an arc and create an entire story by, by weaving together some other stories by saying in order to bring these kids back, if my headphones die, I'm going to be really upset. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, so putting, putting together an arc of how save Ukraine specifically is is working to bring the kids back and say that is that is the process that save ukraine goes through um the reality is is 
you know, the government of Ukraine goes through a different process, I'm sure. And if hopefully the Pope's envoy is able to put something together, that will be yet a different process. So I'm thinking of the things that are happening now and there will be different things in the long run. Um, and, but, but what is happening now to bring the under 400 children back a great, huge effort, a great, huge cost. And, uh, and so just to highlight that a little bit, whenever you hear that, you know, 13 kids or five kids or three kids were returned, there is a lot of effort that has to go into that. There is a lot of pain that has to go into that. And then looking at what the children have gone through while they're there. So then it's not just as easy as bringing in, bringing them home and going back to life as normal. They need help and they need therapy. And I'm so thankful that the Ukrainian government is doing that. And so that's, that's what I wanted to say to start out. How are these kids getting back? They're getting back very painfully and very slowly and not very easily at all. And uh, I think that they will continue to try to do that as best they can. But in the long run, different solutions are going to have to be found like James mentioned with DNA. Go ahead, Gina. Yeah, just to follow up on the DNA testing, one thing I wanted to draw is kind of a parallel. Um, and, you know, maybe uh, this is something to look at and see if experts in Argentina can can help in this process. It, uh, you may remember the the dirty war, right? The the which was, I think, 76 to 83 in Argentina. And some 30,000 people under that military dictatorship were went missing. But a number of, quote unquote, adoptions took place where they would steal the children, often newborns, of these uh, dissidents, you know, those who oppose the government. And the whole process years later, and it's been extraordinarily um, complex and difficult and painful, but DNA testing has figured heavily in this process of identifying now adults who as children were stolen, as infants were stolen under that regime. And uh, there's a great article about this uh, that appeared earlier this year, The Guardian did it, and talked about people who actually went through this, this DNA testing and what they found out. So James, I think you're absolutely right that DNA testing is going to have to play a role here. I don't see how it couldn't. And maybe there are some lessons to be learned in how that was rolled out in Argentina years after the fact that maybe there are ways now to start and probably are in process in Ukraine, I would think, to, to start building those databases and being able to, to implement that as soon as especially we can really hold Russia accountable at, you know, as, part of, as part of any tribunal to facilitating the return of these children, no matter how much they want to say their laws, whatever, you know, that to ultimately, I guess, in, in a blue sky picture to allow investigators, if not to willingly return the children they've stolen, then to allow international investigators to go in to conduct this testing and to return the children. I know that that is blue sky. I know that that is not something that's going to happen right now, but hopefully it will happen at, you know, at some point in the not too distant future after Ukraine wins the war and after there has at least been some mechanism to to expedite the return of these children even pending genocide prosecutions which i know will take longer thank you gina 
So yeah, there's there's going to have to be, you know, finding where these children are. And one of the things that when it when it comes to DNA testing, um, one of the things that that is happening, and I, I know that it is for multiple reasons, but I can see it also being used in this situation. Um, they are DNA testing everybody in the Ukrainian military. And uh, of course, that would be for for um, I'm sure identification process uh, purposes, if ever needed, um, and and to make that process a little bit easier. Um, but I think in the long run, the the DNA that they collect, they are making a, a very decent uh, DNA database of of um, of the Ukrainian military. Um, that that I think could be very helpful in the long run when it comes to things like this. You know, we also have to think about um, things like there there's a situation um, with a Ukrainian POW who was a doctor, and actually she was in Mariupol. She found out that she was pregnant, I believe, about two or three weeks after being taken captive and um, she was held in captivity for six months and that during that time the Russians told her that they were going to take her baby and make her baby a good Russian that you know she had no right to have her baby it uh, and, and she would spend her time talking to her baby saying you will be born in Ukraine. You will be born in Ukraine. Unfortunately, she was released when she was nine months pregnant. And I would have to go find the story again. But I believe she gave birth one or two days after she was returned to Ukraine. So her baby was born in Ukraine. However, are there other military members? Are there other um people who have been taken um who who found themselves to be pregnant and had their children taken away i don't know the answer to that but i could imagine that that would be an instance um unfortunately the reality is is newborn babies are easier to put up for adoption than they are than than older children um that's just a reality um, people people want newborn babies, not not older children typically. Um, although I do know some people, I have some wonderful friends who have adopted um, older children and, and just have a wonderful time of it. Um, and uh, anyway, the uh, so so there are situations like that. So being able to see these DNA, um, being able to to find them through DNA matches, I think will be very important. And, you know, it's going to be hard because I do think that some of these children are orphans. Some of these children were left without family. Some of these children, um, like the six-year-old that I was mentioning, um, you know, if her parents had died as POWs, uh, who would have been left to, to come and try to get her back? Um, so where would the DNA have come from to be able to prove that she was a Ukrainian child who had been, you know, been illegally raised in Russia. Um, so there, there, there are so many different possibilities. Um, but the first thing that comes up is, you know, 
we live in such a data-driven world to think that there is not and there are not records being kept of these children and where they are and where they go to um that is just appalling to me and uh there was another oh man another thing that i had read and and children who uh i'd have to find it again and i'm not going to be able to find it really quickly in this huge huge um segment of the geneva convention <laughs> um but uh, it, there was an indication in one of these things that the children who are removed should be wearing identification that says that they are Ukrainian. Of course, that's not happening either. So anyway, I don't know, Nancy or Gina, if you have any other ideas, go ahead, Nancy. Yeah, I just wanted to add something really quickly. Um, I pulled up the the interview that CBS News did with Mariana Momonova who was the um, woman who's, who was held in captivity and whose uh, daughter, Anna, was born four days after she was liberated. And uh, she basically had That's said, you know, yep, she said, I was, I was stroking my bump and I said, okay, we're home now and you can be born. Everything is good. We're home. So it was four days afterwards. She did everything that uh, that her mom asked, which was just to not be born until they were free. Yeah. Okay. And I did find it. Um, yep. So it, and and one ahead. other thing, just real quick, I'm going to sidebar and then circle back to you, um, Dan. One of the items that I that I located, I knew I had seen it, um, but in your question regarding um, the risk of trafficking due to what Russia's been doing. It's not specific to kidnapped Russian children, but in that thread of threads that I created with the references that we've talked about today, I've added the July 26th, 2023 U.S. Helsinki Commission hearing on rescuing Ukrainian children and women from Russia's aggression. They do very specifically talk about trafficking risks there. The full interview is at that link, as well as a summary and also the um, unofficial transcript of the hearings. So that will probably give you some fresh information as well. Go ahead, James. Oh, sorry, Nancy. No, I just wasn't sure whose hand was up first, whether it was James or Gina's. James. <laughs> Go ahead, James. Yeah, thanks. Um, <clears throat> it it um, <clears throat> it's obvious you've done a lot of work, Prince, um, and read a lot of things. So thank you for that. And um, clearly, Nancy and Gina, you guys came well prepared too. So thank you for that. Um, but I guess what I wanted to say was that it occurred to me. Um, just just how horrible this is for I can't even imagine the day that somebody comes to your door and you know takes you and your child out and you see your child dragged away and uh, then who knows what happens to you as the parent and but but frankly with the um, <clears throat> with what we've seen so far by way of disposal of inconvenient people, um, you know, I think there's 
there's going to be some very happy reunions, uh, but there are some others that aren't just aren't going to happen because there's nobody back home. And I'm, I'm just that, that kind of thought just is, um, it's a very unhappy one, uh, which reminded me of the Bible quote about like, um, you know, woe unto mothers in labor or nursing. And, um, uh, it just made me think about like, well, I guess I don't need to go on. It's a horror thing. And, um, it's, it's just deprivation of like spiritual health that happens to somebody. And, and I, you know, all I can hope is for anybody that survives through this is that they, uh, as as a parent, I mean, that they do have, um, something that, uh, buoys them up and, you know, lifts them above this because it, it seems like a tremendous amount of fortitude to go on after a shock like this. So, um, and I don't want to talk about the special resilience of the Ukrainians, although I think I think it's a great country. I think they're really well educated. They're just people, and I don't. So I don't want to say, well, you know, because I I think in in this regard, they're just like everybody else. They are just as shocked. They get just as hurt. Um, they may be much more able to take action and to think about how to deal with it because they've had to deal with this kind of treatment from Russia for, for generations. So, um, yeah, that, that's all I got. Thanks. Go ahead, Gina. Yeah, I was just going to say two things that one, you're absolutely right about the, um, the ID bracelets. That's the fourth Geneva convention, article 24, which again also specifies that the children are supposed to be taken to a neutral country during the con- uh, during the conflict. This is obviously not a conflict; it's a war. But um, that bit about the identity bracelets: all children under twelve are to be identified by the wearing of identity identity discs or some other means. So, um, just to give a, a footnote to that. But the other thing, too, thinking about what James said, you know, it occurs to me that um, the children and and you know, I understand what you're saying that that some of them are, if I'm understanding you correctly, I think um, maybe not going to have that happy reunion that, that maybe, you know, unfortunately parents have been, are going to have been killed in the war or remaining family members may have, uh, you know, passed on, died, perhaps migration separated them. Um, but, you know, I, I would have to say that I have a feeling that Ukraine's tremendous devotion to seeing its children returned amid this conflict I, I don't think a single child is going to have to worry. Any child that comes back, uh, Ukraine will welcome, uh, whether they have living relatives or not. A country that has taken this much time and effort to document, going on that website, seeing those photographs, seeing those numbers, seeing the meticulous counts every single day that you hear in the news. We got this number back. We got this number back. Would that other nations, and I include, unfortunately, the United States, you know, we're so careful about the missing. We're so careful and so willing to look for all those who are missing. We know, unfortunately, that, you know, many young people go missing in the United States and North America. We have a terrible problem with people of color, missing indigenous women and and children in particular. Um, And those cases are not always pursued as, you know, 
I don't want to get too far into that because that deserves its own separate discussion. There are a number of factors there. But at the, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is people caring about children and human beings. And Ukraine, again, by meticulously documenting these numbers and just demonstrating incredible resolve to see that these children are returned, I feel very confident and hopeful that every single child returned to Ukraine, even though it may be a long, hard road, is going to have far more resources to deal with this than would be seen in maybe other countries. You know, that that's, Ukraine knows well what it's up against here and is determined to get its children back and get them healed. Absolutely. And I'm trying to think of a, a database that, that somebody sent me uh, a while ago well, not all that long ago, um, that I, I know is in my bookmark somewhere. Where it is, I'm not quite sure. But it is a very, very um, detailed bookmark. And it is a, a bookmark. Um, it is, it is a, a database. Oh, there it is. Staring me right in the face. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's basically an online Google Drive, and it has data from 2022 and 2023, and it has um, instructions, of course, but it has witnesses' interviews, witnesses' footage, and it goes through, I'm just going to open it here real quick, folders, um, folders, just a folder for every single month, um, you know, September, 2023, let's just open it real quick. And then it goes by date. And then it comes to the documents, the official documents. And it shows, and it, it has photos in there of, of the things that have happened, the war crimes that have happened, you know, the, the, uh, a specific community in, uh, in, in Kharkiv that um, a specific community in Kharkiv that was shelled and how it looks like it was a, it has links then to Facebook pages and um, it, it just in images and pictures. And that is why it has the, the over 18 uh, warning on it um, so that uh, people know what they're getting into. Because if you start looking through this, you will end up coming across things that may be disturbing and may be difficult to see. Um, and that is, uh, yes, Nancy, I will send that to you right now, the date, the, uh, the link to that. Um, and, and that was shared with us by somebody. And it is, it is a, a rather open source kind of way that people are keeping track. So people are keeping track of these things of the war crimes and, and the crimes that are happening against Ukraine. And they're keeping track of it in, you know, in, in these public formats. Um, and then, so they must be keeping track of it in official formats. And I know they are um, just from other people I've talked to. And it, it does, it starts February 24th, talking about what happened in the Dnipro region, the Donetsk, the Ivanka that uh, Frankisk, Kharkiv, Kherson, Kiev city, Kiev region, Mykolaiv, and it 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 uh, documents war crimes. And 
I don't know that it goes into detail in documenting kids, but but what I can see here is an effort being put in by the world, an effort being put in by Ukraine to do so much to document this and to do so much to work with the prosecutor's office um, in order to bring cases. And, and, you know, that's one thing I will just mention real quick here is that because of the stuff that I'm doing on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings, depending on where you live, with the SBU, you know, I, I have not seen an instance yet where they have been able to um, hold somebody accountable or serve a suspicion on somebody who who has, you know, acted in taking in deporting children to Russia. But what I can tell you is that, that every week they are finding somebody who is cooperating with Russia and who is doing things like, uh, you know, correcting the, the, the artillery fire or a missile or c directing drones or something like this. Um, the most memorable was one in the last couple of weeks where they were able to identify a group of soldiers who were responsible for shooting up a car in, in Bucha. And uh, so even though those people haven't been arrested, they are identifying them and they are serving suspicion on them and they are making their identities known so that, you know, they can't possibly be arrested if they are found. And so it is my hope and it is my firm belief that the Ukrainian government, um, along with other agencies, are working on this very diligently and very closely behind the scenes to try to identify those people who are working to take children out, who are, um, who are working to, um, to build cases against these people, um, to, to be able to hold them accountable as, as individuals. And as we move on, it'll get bigger and bigger. But, you know, I think one of the most important things is, is that we have seen, you know, we have seen individual people being um, charged and, and tried and sentenced for some of the individual small, you can't say it's a small thing to shoot up a family in a car trying to escape Bucha, but in the realm of charging genocide, it, it's one teeny little piece of that genocide that happened. And, you know, holding those individuals responsible is important, just like holding the individuals um, who who helped to deport and illegally kidnap these children and take them to Russia. Holding those individuals responsible is important, and that will fall upon Ukraine. But as we get bigger and, uh, and look towards um, charging genocide to... Uh, Two people within Russia, we want to look at the big fish like Vladimir Putin and Maria Lvova-Belova. And we've seen that that first step in issuing those those ICC warrants for for what um, for what they were issued. And that is a first step to lead us to the step of genocide in the long run, I hope. And I truly, truly do believe that. So I've waffled on a bit. I will uh, leave it to Nancy or, or Gina to... Uh, help to wrap us up here um, and I will uh, send a message in the background and uh, yeah and 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 sort of sort of reconfigure my screen a little bit because I've got to host pillows for three more hours yeah 
Gina and Prince, thank you so much for covering these topics with me tonight. I, I know I did more of the, the uh, coordination of documentation in the background, but we do have a pretty robust thread there with a, a lot of the resources that we've talked about today um, in our session. And I really appreciate some very good questions, very good feedback. This is a this is an area that is so challenging to get your hands around. And I know that that we can't do this topic justice in a single night and a single session, but I hope that we gave you guys information and resources again to try and take this from the, the pure anger and frustration and pain of this is bad and it should never happen um, to at least give more structure to that information. And this portion in particular, I think is compelling to speak about with friends and family, you know, and again, what do you want to communicate to the folks in your circle who maybe aren't paying attention and aren't on a space like this or getting highly informed information in a timely fashion about Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine? Talking about children and the impacts there is something that just about everybody can relate to, no matter what the situation, no matter what their opinion or persuasion, talking to them with the information that we've provided and with those reports and documents about what's happened to the children that have been illegally seized by Russia from Ukraine is is something I think is worth sharing to people so that they truly understand that impact. You know, torture, things like that. Our society looks at children as more innocent. And so when you look at things that are done by Russia to adults, somewhere in the back of somebody's mind, it'll be, well, you know, did they do something to deserve it? Well, obviously we know the answer is, of course not. But there's sometimes that doubt in people's minds. That's not the case with children. Children are innocents, and these things should not be happening to them. And by explaining what is happening to friends and family and people who haven't been focused on it, I think is a way that we can make a difference. And providing this objective information can help make a difference in their opinions as well, too. So thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, Gina, I'm sure you've got some closing information as well. And thank you so much for all of the work that, that you've been doing to support Ukraine and for joining us in these wonderful sessions so far. So I'll turn it over to you, Gina. Oh, it's, it's always um, just a pleasure and an honor for tragic reasons, but to, to be here amidst this and to, to learn, to share information, to just keep ourselves motivated and focused. And 
you know, as you were speaking, Nancy, it just occurred to me, I was thinking, you know, really, we, we can't give up. These kids are depending upon, obviously, their loved ones in Ukraine, upon the Ukrainian government, but they're also depending upon the world to do the right thing, to say that it is not acceptable for one nation to take another nation's children and to destroy their identities and to scatter these children, erase any memory of their identity reconfigure or destroy their documentation, remove them to the furthest parts of the, what I think, 11 time zones that comprise Russia. The Ukrainian children who are in that captivity, and it is captivity, not only physical, but mental and emotional, they need us and we have to be there for them. And by, by participating in Maria Report, by speaking to our legislators, by staying informed and by not being afraid to share this truth with the people in our closest circle. Sometimes the hardest people to talk to are the people at your own dinner table, you know, to, oh, I don't want to go there. It's an uncomfortable topic. Don't be afraid. We need to speak up. We can't lose hope. We can't lose focus. We need to see that Russia is held to account for its massive violations of international human law, of international human rights. Again, every condition of the Genocide Convention violated as the two new lines and Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights reports demonstrate report after report, news report after news report, image after image, survivor testimony after survivor testimony is telling us what's happening here. We know and we need to fight it and we need to just stand strong and keep forward in this work. And Slava Ukraini. Hello, Slava. I do have and Prince, and Prince, I want to do a special call out to you and thank you for sharing your personal experiences as an adopted child and sharing that vulnerability with us to help us understand um, a lot more of of what even a loved and cared for child goes through. And I think that really hit, hit home for many of us. And I just want to thank you for, for being so open and sharing that. Thank you. It just, it hit me while we were talking about it. Didn't even hit me until then, you know, maybe that's why in some ways I'm very passionate about this, the, the entire idea of the genocide um, to what is happening to the children and, and to them being um, taken to the Russian Federation and to the occupied territories and realizing the pain that that causes them. Um, not only the pain that that causes them, but the pain that that causes their families. And, uh, you know, I, it's, uh, yeah, I, like I said, I didn't even put it together until we were talking about it in, in any way. So thank you. Um, I will also just remind people next week, if I believe I believe I'm correct, in saying we're going to um, move on from intent, and we are going to talk about the, the duty to prevent genocide, and uh, that is uh, going to be um, the subject that we have um, there. And I I don't know if we have anything beyond that. That pretty much covers the new lines report, um, but we will. We will see what we cocked up and come up to come up with. Um, you know, I probably uh, could keep Gina's Friday night occupied for quite a while with different ideas, 
um, but but <laughs> she has been very gracious in in uh, joining us uh, these last several Friday nights to to talk about genocide and 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 uh, and understanding genocide in Ukraine. And uh, I think we've been able to do that really with a uh, with more of a look to what it means. Um, and and yes, there have been very very emotional moments, and there have been very emotional things. Um, but I think we've tried to look at it from a pretty level head to understand exactly what the genocide convention means rather than just raging about the things that are happening, um, which, of course, is is not inappropriate. It, it happens and and uh, and we all do that. So anyway, I want to thank you guys. And yeah, next week we will be talking about the duty to prevent genocide. And it's 10.05, and I thank you guys very, very much. Um, so, yeah. Thank you. And yep. uh, I think, Nancy, your replacement is here. And yep. uh, yeah. I think he is, uh, he is lurking about somewhere. So at this point, I am going to sign off and thank everyone for joining us tonight. And I'm going to go rustle up will to replace me and prince will continue on for several more hours and uh gina thank you again so much for joining us thanks y'all oh, it's always good thank you so much slava ukraini y'all and again thank you gina thank you so much for for all you've put into doing this